Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Permanente Docs chat. Thank you for joining or listening from wherever you may be. I'm your host, Alex McDonald. I practice family and sports medicine here in Fontana, California, as part of the Southern California Permanente Medical Group. Um, although uh, the, the public health emergency is over, uh, COVID is still with us. And today we're going to be talking about uh, COVID and long COVID with uh, Dr. Tarquin Collis, who is the Chief of Infectious Disease at the Hawaii Permanente Medical Group. So, so uh, Tarquin, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. So if you're listening live or, or watching live and you have questions, please feel to drop them in the Q&A and we'll get to as many of those as we can. Uh, but we're going to keep this high yield and we're just going to jump right in. So uh, Dr. Collis, tell us tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah. So so I'm the chief of ID, as you mentioned, um, in the Kaiser Hawaii region and I also oversee the medical specialties. So help with lots of non-surgical specialties, all of their recruiting and, and uh, sort of program management. Great. Um, well, there was a recent uh, Lancet report that showed that the state of Hawaii had one of the lowest death rates uh, of COVID during the pandemic. Um, and I want to ask you about that. Why do you think Hawaii had this, this lower death rate than the rest of the country? And what, what do you think you could attribute that to or, or, or hypothesize uh, what that low low death rate may be attributed to in, in the state of Hawaii? Yeah, I think it's probably a couple things. Not all of them were addressed in, in that report. I think, you know, we are, we do have the advantage of being surrounded by a couple thousand miles of water. So I think early right. in the pandemic, we were lucky in the sense that we could really sort of isolate the same way that places like Taiwan and, and New Zealand did. And that helped, I think, a lot. Um, really, probably what it did is allow us to wait until a lot of folks were vaccinated before we were having large outbreaks of kind of community-based transmission. And I think that helped really decrease the death rate a lot. Mm. I think another thing that that really, you know, we're proud of here and, and lucky about is that Hawaii's had nearly universal health insurance since about the mid-1970s, one of the only oh, wow. couple of days to do that. And so, you know, access to care is a big issue in terms of COVID mortality. And I think we're uh, we're blessed in that respect um, because there are so few uninsured folks. One thing that the that the paper pointed out, which I thought was really interesting, was one of their big predictors of statewide mortality. And again, Hawaii had about a quarter of the mortality of states like Arizona from COVID um, was actually degrees of interpersonal trust that came out as like a major predictor in the study. And you know, what's that about exactly? We don't really know, but I think what it probably means is you know, the, the inverse really is a lack of distrust. And so I think people are more likely to believe that they should get vaccinated or to mask to prevent help, you know, infecting others and sort of a, a, a bit of a community-based focus and a, and a little less political divisiveness, I think really went a long way here um, in terms of helping people adhere to public health mandates and trust doctors about what evidence-based practice is and isn't. And that came out as a really interesting finding in the study that I thought was cool and, and kind of reflected, I think, of what our own experience here was. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I know a, a lot of the the information, at least initially coming out around vaccination and masking, some of the kind of the testing uh, talking points that they looked at were people were less likely to be motivated uh, out of a sense of sort of responsibility for the community or everyone doing their part seemed to be less of a motivating factors for the vast majority of Americans versus maybe it was the inverse there in, in Hawaii, which I think is really, really very interesting, actually. Yeah, it's kind of funky. I mean, we're a long ways from, you know, we're sort of, I always tell people we're, we're we are part of the United States, but we're almost like a 
different country in a way. And, and I think there's also a pretty heavy Asian influence in terms of the acceptance of masking. You know, it's very commonly practiced in South Korea and Japan long before um, this pandemic. And, and there's a little bit of a bleed into that here. So I think between a, a good sense of community and a bit of aloha spirit and a lack of political divisiveness and a non-controversial approach to masking, we were very lucky. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Um, well, you know, obviously, as I said, COVID is still with us. It's not nearly as as uh, as, as dangerous as it was uh, during the height of the pandemic. Um, but we also have this thing called long COVID. I I had never heard of the term long COVID before a couple of years ago. I'm sure many of our uh, both our, our physicians and, and non healthcare uh, listeners haven't heard that term before. So what 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 is long COVID? I mean, how is it diagnosed? And, and really, are there any specific treatments? Um, help us help us understand this sort of phenomenon, which seems to be another kind of novel piece of, of this coronavirus. Yeah, it's been a fascinating thing to sort of try and understand this. I think we're a ways from completely understanding it. Um, there's a couple of definitions floating around there for long COVID. You know, the CDC's definition is pretty inclusive. It's basically if you have symptoms four weeks after, you know, four weeks or longer after your acute infection, the WHO has a different definition, which is more stringent. You have to have been like three months out from the infection and have had at least two months of symptoms. But if you think of it broadly as just having persistent symptoms well after your recovery, or even new symptoms, by the way, developing well after your recovery from the acute infection, then you're in the right sort of ballpark. I think the reality is what we call long COVID is a pretty umbrella term. And there's a lot of different symptom complexes and sort of phenotypes of, of, of symptoms that fall under that umbrella. For some people, it's brain fog. For others, it's something closer to chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, for others, it's issues with shortness of breath or palpitations or postural hypertension. And what's what we're really trying to figure out is, are all of those phenotypes united under sort of one pathophysiology, you know, or, or are there different forms of immune activation, persistent viruses, microclotting, hypercortisolism, there's a bunch of, of different pathophysiologies that may underlie a lot of the symptoms. And I think we may come to a much better understanding down the road of what's what. There really isn't um, a, you know, a blood test, for example. It's really right. a syndromic definition of what long COVID is and isn't. And um, and that's just something that we're sort of stuck with. Uh, sorry, my light just went out, by the way. So I may look a little deeper, but that's, that's how it goes. Um, and in terms of treatment, um, because I think we don't understand, you know, what long COVID is um, yet at the microscopic level, our treatments are really not there yet. Um, we have a much better understanding of maybe how to prevent long COVID than we do how to treat it just yet. Yeah. I mean, I, I think of this somewhat um, coming from my sports medicine background. Obviously, I, I see and treat a lot of concussions, which are, is, again, it's a clinical diagnosis. There's no blood test for a concussion. There's lots of different ways that people can present with a concussion. And then there's those kind of um, uh, concussion sequelae as well, too. Um, and, and the way that I was trained for sports medicine is you really sort of treat the symptoms of the post-concussion syndrome, uh, you know, if, if, if and, and it may have some there may be some some ideas that sort of a concussion will sort of unmask uh, sort of an under, underlying condition. So somebody who had a little bit of anxiety gets a concussion and they have more anxiety. Somebody who had a little bit of or, or maybe mild migraines gets a concussion, they get more severe migraines. Um, is can can we think of COVID in that sense, or we we just don't have enough information yet? Well, I think that's a great point. I think you know um, a lot of long COVID clinics, and we can we can talk about that. That's something that we're doing here. Um, do focus right now on symptom management because that's 
one of the few things we can offer. And and right. and we do have, I think, evolving ways to manage different symptoms depending on what they are. Um, and that can be anything from, you know, helping um, invoke cardiology or neurology's help with folks who suffer from postural hypotension, um, dealing with tachycardias or shortness of breath um, in different ways with medications, uh, managing brain fog, working with physical therapists in terms of fatigue. There's mm -hmm. a lot of it is around dealing with the sequelae rather than the underlying cause just yet. Right. I do hope that down the road, you know, we'll have a much better understanding and be able to offer treatments to resolve rather than just manage the symptoms. But I think we're a distance from that just yet. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. How, and this is a question that came through the chat, which I have a lot. It was, it was on my list actually. So whoever dropped this question, thank you. Um, how, how are clinicians being trained to see these sort of potentially random symptoms as all part of long COVID rather than just sort of other random uh, symptomatology? I and mean, we have patients coming in with fatigue all the time. How do we say, oh, this is long COVID, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome versus just good old fashioned chronic fatigue syndrome, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah, you know, I think that um, as with most things in medicine, it's 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 just a growing understanding and, and an ongoing education of the workforce. You know, we're lucky here to have started a long COVID clinic last year. A couple of other Kaiser regions are either are doing so or have done so. KP Northwest and KP Colorado, I know, are involved in that same effort. And it really does help to have a specialty referral um, center either within your institution or outside of it. Because you're right, um, there is a lot of overlap between a ton of these symptoms and other, you know, other forms of, of disease that can cause similar symptoms. Um, in our long COVID clinic, which is actually not run out of my department, it's run by a single doc here, Abby Pandula, who's wonderful. And if you're ever looking for another guest from Hawaii, she's fantastic. Um, she's an internist in, and a really thoughtful doc. Um, you know, a part of her initial evaluation is really to make sure that there isn't another cause for the symptoms, whether that's hypothyroidism or heart failure, et cetera. Um, you know, a second focus, as we talked about, is symptom management. And then, you know, one thing that's really interesting, and, and I've talked to her about this at some length, is that what she feels, you know, one of the things she really provides to patients who do have long COVID is just an acknowledgement that, that they have something real and they're dealing with something and making them feel heard and, you know, having some hope that someone will help walk them through this because it is a newly sort of evolving paradigm um, as a disease and, and as a symptom complex. And it's nice to feel like someone understands that. I think that's such a key point is sort of validating anything in medicine, but especially something as sort of poorly understood as this is just sort of validating the, the patient that they have, they, they're heard and, and, and that the, they're being taken seriously, not just sort of being blown off um, as well. I think that's such an important piece and across medicine, but especially for something like this, which is relatively new and poorly understood as well too. Um, I, I do want to chat about the long COVID clinic actually. So, so, um, but I have one quick question before that. And, sure. and that's more about, you know, are there other viral syndromes which which produce these kind of prolonged uh, symptoms afterwards? I mean, we have long COVID, but do we have you know long anything else, any other viral type infections, or is this something unique to to COVID? Well, you know, I think that's actually a great question. Um, the truth is that long COVID really joins a list of a lot of other post-infectious syndromes that honestly we haven't paid all that much attention to or, or understood all that well. Um, 
you know, chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis is the other term for that, mm-hmm. um, has many causes, but among the best established of them are Epstein-Barr virus and mm-hmm. fever and Ross River virus. So, so there are certain infections that clearly are precipitants in some patients to chronic fatigue. They're really well-established, long post-infectious syndromes after chikungunya infection, after Ebola virus. One thing that gives me a little pause is that, you know, there are some post-viral infectious syndromes that can take a long time to develop. For example, after the 1918 um, flu pandemic, it was clearly recognized, although it took a few years, that there was a form of Parkinsonism that clearly followed as a sequelae from some of Mm -hmm. those infections. And then, you know, we still deal with something called post-polio syndrome. So this isn't paralytic polio so much as something that occurs 30 or 40 years, sometimes three or four decades after polio, where people develop muscle atrophy and breathing problems and fatigue and joint pain. And and so one of the things that we're sort of watching for in the long COVID world is whether there will be new syndromes that actually join, (laughs) join you know, join into the fray later on that take a long time to develop after COVID. The hope is that there's so much money and research pouring into long COVID right now, which is great, is that maybe we can refract some of that onto some of these other problems that we've been dealing with for a long time and infectious disease, and which you know may offer some hope for some folks with other sort of related pathophysiologically symptoms from other viruses, which would be great. Yeah, yeah. No, that, and that makes perfect sense too. Um, I, I think there's just such an atten- intense focus on COVID and and long COVID is, is so much more... Um, uh, discussed, I guess, in the, in the lay press as well, too, that more people are aware of it and they're kind of bringing it forwards as well versus some of those maybe slightly more defined post-viral syndromes, but, but less attention, so to speak. Um, so thanks for, thanks for clarifying that point. I appreciate it. Um, so tell us more about this long COVID clinic, uh, in Honolulu. Um, what is the role of that clinic? What is the strategy and, and, and what are kind of some of the, the, uh, ways they're, they're addressing, uh, this, this condition? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly been a very busy clinic for Abby. Um, and, it, you know, people refer from either specialties or primary care directly into the clinic. It, it often starts off as an e-consult. She reviews the charts, sort of gets a better sense of what's happening, and, and more often than not brings the patient in to be seen. They have a pretty long intake evaluation um, involving a, a careful physical exam and, and a long series of questions to really sort out where the issues lie in terms of symptomatology. And then, as I mentioned, she really tries to make sure that there's no other simple, simply fixable explanation that may be masquerading as long COVID and then engages the patient in a fairly long course of sustained support and, and, um, and symptom approaches to, to making people feel better. Um, we're trying to hook her up um, with some research efforts, there's, you know, there's several long COVID clinics, UCSF and Mount Sinai and Yale that are doing some really interesting research in this world. And, and I hope that we do manage to establish those ties and expand, um, you know, so that we can actually help to answer some of these questions about what, you know, what we should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is that, is that, is that enough having just one person do this? Is there a big demand for this clinic? Um, and, and if, how how can we sort of maybe replicate these efforts other places as well too? Yeah, I think there probably will need to be either another Abby or more of Abby's time dedicated to this because it's become very busy. I think it's been a, a real boon for her colleagues in primary care. You know, it's very hard to address these things in a 20 minute, mm-hmm. right? And, and she makes more time for the patients than that. Um, some of it edges into, you know, almost like behavioral health approaches to, to helping people feel 
validated and supported. And so um, I do think it'll likely expand over time. What we're trying to figure out, of course, in the bigger picture is, is long COVID becoming less frequent mm -hmm. um, as our sort of collective immunity increases? There are some data to suggest that that long COVID is, is less um, frequent now if you're mm -hmm. infecting a population that has some degree of baseline immunity because they've been vaccinated and boosted and infected previously, as most mm -hmm. people have. Mm -hmm. Maybe we will see less long COVID over time. But if that's not the case, right? <laughs> if in fact it's going to be a, a steadily growing problem just with the number of people that are that are infected over time, then I think we will definitely have to expand. So I think it's both a field and a clinic inactive evolution, and it'll be kind of exciting um, to see where things go. Yeah, yeah. Do we have any idea of, of what percentage of people uh, develop long COVID, um, or is we just that's just there's not enough data or tracking to kind of get our get our wrap our hands around that um, that information or that that number? Yeah, um, I think part of the issue is that the definition um, shifts that percentage around a lot, right? If right. you're just kind of saying how many people feel kind of junky a month out, that's a lot of people. If it's more stringent and you you know are you three months out and feeling really debilitated, that's a that's a much smaller percentage. So it shifts with the definition. The early and then, of course, you know, um, the earlier uh, sort of experiences with COVID where it was a much more devastating infection for a lot of people who were in the ICU and hospitalized is very different than now. And so, again, our understanding of how frequent it is becomes a lot harder to manage when most people are being diagnosed with home management tests rather than formally, et cetera. Right. And a lot of people probably aren't even being diagnosed. It's probably south of 5% of people that are severely debilitated nowadays after their COVID experience, but it ain't, it ain't zero. That's for sure. Right. And we're still seeing new patients pop up all the time. Yeah. I, I have a couple of patients just that I, I care for as their primary care doctor who just have debilitating symptoms um, a year, two, two years out even. And it's just, I, I, I don't know what to do for them. I feel I feel so stuck sometimes too. And so uh, there was a question here in the chat, which is sort of similar. I'm going to kind of merge them into into one here. Um, so it sounds like we're a ways off from any actual treatment of of long COVID or even understanding kind of the pathophysiology of long COVID. Um, you know, does it matter if you just treat the symptoms of 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 long COVID versus sort of the underlying uh, kind of what we may think maybe the pathophysiology? Um, so that's, I guess, the first part. And the, and the second part, does does vaccination or, or anything help to, to prevent long COVID? I guess that's ultimately the goal is to prevent the illness in the first place. Sure. I think um, to answer the first question, I think that um, I don't think there's a harm in, in, in treating symptomatically while we wait for more defined approaches. Um, you know, among the there are there are some data suggesting that at least in a subset of patients, viral persistence may be the real issue. There's a big study going on now called Stop PASC, which is an NIH-based study, and, and Stanford's um, participating in that, looking at treating folks with long COVID with 15 days of Paxlovid, interestingly enough, to oh, wow. see if some subset of patients do harbor some residual virus and to see whether that helps. Um, and then there are some immune-based therapies that I think will be really interesting to see whether, if in fact the issue is really inflammation or, or autoimmunity, whether we can alter those. But I think we're a distance from, from figuring out how to, how, to, you know, how to best get at the, the heart of the matter. And until then, I think symptom management is basically all we've, all we've got effectively. Right. In terms of the second question, you know, what are the things that we think prevent long COVID from starting in the first place? There are a couple of data points there that are pretty interesting. Vaccination, um, being vaccinated um, before you're infected does seem to prevent long COVID. The estimates 
um, of how great an effect that is vary between studies. It's somewhere between 15 and 40% in most of the big studies that have looked at this. So it's another reason to be, you know, as well vaccinated as you can be. Um, there are some really interesting data suggesting that treating the acute infection really may help prevent um, long COVID down the road. So um, there's a big study that came out um, looking at, a v at the VA experience with Paxlovid, and it suggested about a 26% decrease in long COVID in those that received Paxlovid when they were acutely infected. I think mm. that, I mean, one of the better reasons to take Paxlovid, honestly. Interesting. Um, there was the, the, a better study in a way, which hasn't been as well talked about. Um, the Japanese use um, a drug called Encetrelvir. It's sort of their oral Paxlovid equivalent. And in their registration trial, which is actually a prospective treatment trial rather than this cohort-based um, large study out of the VA, in their treatment trial, they showed about a 45% decrease in long COVID in patients who were treated during their acute infection. And that may be closer to what we see. So if the virus is, in fact, you know, causal um, directly and you can shorten the, the, the exposure to the virus with a, with a good antiviral, that may be a really important, um, important approach. And then the last one, there's a really interesting study, very provocative study in the Lancet, part of the COVID out trial, which is also a prospective trial that showed that um, taking metformin for two weeks during your acute infection decreased the risk of long COVID by about 42%. Hmm. That's not really ready for prime time yet, but metformin does have both antiviral and anti-inflammatory processes at play. And so there's some interesting follow-up studies looking at whether metformin may actually have a role when you're acutely infected. So I think we'll gain a better understanding again, as we understand what the heck this thing really is about how to prevent it. Um, but I think that uh, those are the early, the early studies we're looking at so far that give us some clues. Wow. That, that's really interesting. I hadn't heard that about, about metformin and that's something we use all the time in primary care. Uh, so that's really interesting. Um, so uh, this is great. We could probably go on and on. I, I want to ask two two more quick questions. Um, uh, one is what what's next for COVID? I mean, are we going to see sort of a predictable seasonal pattern like we do with flu? Um, are we going to need annual vaccinations? We're going to have our, our our fluvid vaccine where we get flu and and COVID every every fall. Is that is it too early to know where we're going yet? Sure, I think. Um... <laughs> I think the two factors that are probably going to have the most to say about that are, are really what the virus does, obviously, um, and then how, what, how our vaccines evolve. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about the virus, really since November of 2021, so for maybe the past 18 months, we've been dealing exclusively really with the children and grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren of, of Omicron. Um, mm -hmm. We've stayed within the Omicron family from BA1 all the way through XBB. Mm -hmm. And in that context, our immune systems are doing pretty well in warding off um, severe infections and waves of infections. And I think as long as we stay there, that would be, that'd be awesome. Then mm -hmm. I think we might be in evolution to a seasonal pattern. What we don't know is whether the virus will do another big leap forward. And there's a lot of reasons to believe that it might. There's a lot of bright minds that are trying to estimate how likely that might be that it takes a big genetic leap. You know, it can infect up to about 30 different animal species. There's, it's a worldwide infection. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of immunocompromised hosts who can inadvertently serve as, as sort of incubators for viral evolution. So if it takes another big hop, we could certainly see a movement away from low-grade seasonal infections towards something much more like our first, you know, year's experience, which I certainly right. hope to happen. Yeah. And then, in, in parallel to that, is the race of vaccine development. And you know, we had our current vaccines, which are excellent, developed through Operation Warp Speed. There's a new um, government um, sort of supported initiative called Project Next Gen, which has pumped about five billion bucks into 
looking at new vaccines, whether that's mucosal vaccines, a lot of the work from Akiko Iwasaki at Yale is looking at that. Mm-hmm. We're using a nasal vaccine in India right now that's an intellectual property out of WashU. Um, and looking at, you know, pan sarbecovirus vaccines, vaccines that are variant proof. So I think as the virus evolves and as our vaccines evolve, that'll, both of those things will have a lot to say about where the, where the pandemic actually, where the endemic state actually evolves to down the road. So, so in short, stay tuned. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Awesome. Um, well, okay. Last question. And this is wonderful. It's such a wonderful information. I, I wish we had more time. Um, but last question, what, what makes you most proud to be a permanent day physician? Whoosh. Well, I guess, you know, staying on the theme of the day, it's been neat to be part of an organization during the COVID pandemic that I think has done things the right way. I have a bunch of friends in the community who work in different hospital systems or in public health, and they were really impressed with how Kaiser in Hawaii and Kaiser nationally approached the pandemic in terms of sticking with evidence-based practice and, and working in a collegial fashion and really jumping into the community to help with vaccinating underprivileged groups and those at, at high risk. And so that's been a really neat thing to see. And I think just on a personal level, you know, I, I saw a lot of people run into the burning house to help others rather than running away from it. Um, mm-hmm. Really proud of my colleagues and proud to be a part of that effort. Well, well, well said, very well said. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today and, and sharing your expertise, Dr. Collis. Um, thank you, that's all I got. You're welcome, you take care of yourself. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and are not meant to represent the views of the Permanente Federation, the Permanente Medical Groups, or Kaiser Permanente.